The story that we're going to look at today has a main point, and then there's an interesting secondary topic that is just too important to ignore. So in order to be faithful to the story, what I want to do today first is tell you the big picture story that's going on, what the narrator really wants us to understand, and then I want to come back to the secondary theme that's embedded in this story. For both purposes, uh, I need to jump back a couple of chapters to something that we talked about a few weeks ago. Actually, we skipped over these verses but it's important to set a context. So while we're going to talk about chapter 20 in 1 Samuel today, I want to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 18. If you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bible, this particular section is on page 406, and I'm going to begin reading verse 1. The words will also be on the screen. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 to 4. It says, After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Now, there are two things going on here. One is historical and one personal. The personal one about friendship we're going to set aside for just a moment. But I want to talk first about the historical, even the theological significance of what's going on here. A few weeks ago, when we started this series on the life of David, we learned that David was told that he would be the king. But there's an in-between time, not unlike the time between the first Tuesday in November uh, when we elect a president and Inauguration Day in January, an in-between time when someone is still in power but knows that someone else was going to be taking the reins of power. Now, in the transition between Saul and Jonathan, it lasted not maybe 90 days, but it lasted uh, about 20 to 25 years. So it's an extended period of time. Saul has a son named Jonathan who's aware that David is to be the next king. And that's significant. It's significant because as Saul's son, according to the rules of the day, he was the king apparent or the heir apparent. But you want to look at what he does here that is surprising, and that is in verse 4 when it says, Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic, even his sword, his bow, and his belt. And you ask, what's Jonathan doing? Well, what he's doing is giving up, renouncing his claim on the throne, giving David the royal robe and saying, you will take my place as king. Even if by rights the job should be mine, you have my blessing. And it's extraordinary because you just wonder how many people would actually do this? How many people would willingly give up power that is theirs in order to give it to someone else? But Jonathan does so here because he knows that David is God's choice. And so he submits to God's will. Now I want to skip to chapter 20 where we'll talk about the story that we've come on today. What's happened in the meantime is that David's relationship with King Saul has deteriorated. Jonathan's father, King, uh, King Saul has uh, tried seven different times to have David executed. So the last couple of weeks, Amy and I have shared the different assassination plots that Saul has hatched. And the reason he does this is because of jealousy. After after David killed the the, uh, giant Goliath and led the Israeli army um, on a route of the Philistines, there was a song that went straight to the top of the top 40. And the chorus went like this. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, it's not clear that those who wrote the song intended to be disrespectful of King Saul, but like many insecure leaders, he couldn't take the criticism, and his reaction was immediate and swift, and he wanted David eliminated. So that raises a question. 
When did Saul learn that David would be made king? That's one of the questions that came in through the email address, kingdavidideas at gmail.com. And if you've been with us, or if you haven't, let me just say that we've invited all of you into the sermon preparation process for this particular series. We're encouraging you to read the story in advance. And if you have ideas or questions or thoughts, um, even illustrations, just send them to that email address, and we'll uh, work at trying to make certain that we answer these questions. So this is an important question. When did Saul learn David would be made king? Well, the narrator has left us some hints, although he doesn't tell us directly. And the first of these happened actually in what we talked about last summer. And that is toward the end of the the series that we had last summer, we talked about a time when Saul one more time disobeyed God. And God then instructed Samuel to deliver a difficult message. This is in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Toward the end of the chapter, he says, Samuel says to Saul, you have rejected the word, that is the instructions of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. So at that point, Saul knew that his days were numbered. Then in the next chapter, which took place some years later, it says, then when God had Samuel select a new king, it says that the the narrator says that from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David and the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Saul had to notice this, but again, it's another clue that the end is near. And then finally, in the stories that we've looked at the last couple of weeks, Saul has watched while seemingly everyone in the nation has decided that David is the new hero. The soldiers in the army, his son Jonathan, even later his daughter Michal. And that's when the tipping point happens when Saul hears this song, Saul has slain his thousands and David has slain his tens of thousands. We're told that Saul was very angry. And he says this, what more can he get but the kingdom? He's talking about David. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that moment on, Saul stubbornly held on to power and tried to do all he could to eliminate David as a rival. Did he know at that point that David would eventually take his place as king? Well, he had to, although many think that his thinking may have been clouded. And so what we see is that he holds on tightly to power although he probably knew that eventually David would take over as king. The lesson for us here is that we need to be careful about holding on to anything that God has granted us for a season. There are times when God may ask us to make a change. It may be something really important to us, maybe even like with King Saul, a leadership position that gives us status and power, or it may be something totally different. But the point is, whatever it is, God indicates that there's a time for change we need to accept his will, not to resist not to hold on jealously to whatever it is that we have. Now, after all these seven assassination attempts, David isn't really sure what to do. He feels obligated to honor Saul as king, committed to serve him in whatever role he's been given, but he's also afraid and confused, and that's where I want to pick the story up at the beginning of chapter 20. If you want to follow along, it'll be on page 408 in the Pew Bible, although we'll also have the words on the screen. So here's what David asks Jonathan to begin this chapter in verse 1. He says, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to kill me? So here he is torn between his loyalty to the king and his friendship with David. In verse 2, we find out that Jonathan isn't quite so convinced that this is what Saul has in mind. He says, Never. You're not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without letting me know. Why would you hide this from me? It isn't so. What David knows is that it's difficult for Jonathan to see his father clearly, in part because most likely 
Saul has hidden his intentions from Jonathan. So here's what Saul or David says in verse 3. David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I found favor in your eyes. And he said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and you live, there is only a step between me and death. Now, Jonathan still isn't convinced, but he offers to help David to find out whether this is true. He says, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you in verse 4. So David devises a test to discern whether, uh, what Saul's true intentions are and asks Jonathan to help him out. Now, the next section is long. We're not going to read it. So let me just summarize what they decide to do. Saul invites David to a state dinner. Actually, uh, it's a dinner that happens over a couple of days. But out of fear, David decides not to go. He asks Jonathan, though, to watch Saul's reaction when he discovers that David isn't there. If Saul takes the news calmly, David will know his life's safe. But if he loses his temper, then he'll know that his life is at risk. So the first day of these two days goes just fine. Saul notices, but he thinks that David perhaps has an excuse. But day two is different. In verses 30 and 31, it says that when Saul noticed David was absent, his anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Now to Jonathan's credit here, he defends David. Even though, as his father points out, it's not in his best interest that the kingdom would be his if David were to be eliminated. He says to Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? And then it says, but Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. So he was even willing to kill his own son to accomplish his purposes. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger And on the second day of the feast, he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. Now, the next morning, what happens is, according to a prearranged signal, Jonathan gives David the news. I'm going to come back to what happens next because there is a whole lot about friendship in that. But I want to talk here about the narrator's main point that he's trying to make in this entire chapter. And it's what you might call the big picture story. And that is that God has chosen David to be the next king, not Saul. But despite Saul's intense opposition, God protects David. And to do so, he uses another courageous and faithful person, in this case, Saul's son, Jonathan. So this is the point. The point is is that God is protecting and providing for his people, um, even though someone wants to thwart his purposes. All Jonathan does here is at great risk. He gives up a lifelong dream, the dream of replacing his father as king, and he also takes his life in his own hands. But he knows he's doing God's will. He's willing to set aside personal ambition because he knows that this is what God wants. Now, we should also remember that Jonathan himself is a very capable leader. Earlier in 1 Samuel, there are several stories that talk about Jonathan's capability as a a battle commander, as a politician, and his character is impeccable. So everything we know about Jonathan indicates that he would have also made a great king. But God selected David. And Jonathan was willing to submit to God's will, and it made his father hopping mad. It's now that I want to shift to the other topic, the topic of friendship. And as I said, that's a secondary topic, but there's also a great deal here about a deep and profound friendship between two men who should have been rivals. To understand their friendship, let's go back again to chapter 18. I read these words, but I want to just dwell on them for a moment from chapter 18, verse 1. 
It says, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and loved him as himself. And then just a bit later, it says, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Now, covenants are different than contracts. We're more familiar in our day with contracts. Contracts are conditional arrangements between two parties. If I sign a contract, I'm promising to do something for you, and you're promising to do something for me. And so contracts are, are uh, bilateral. Covenants, though, are unilateral. Even if the other person doesn't fulfill their end of the bargain, I'm going to promise to keep my end of the bargain. And it may seem extreme to us because many of our friendships today really are transactional. As long as a particular friendship is useful to us, we'll work at it, but as soon as we're not getting what we want, we're out of there. What David and Jonathan had was a friendship for its own sake, not for what either one could get out of it. Friendship with David actually complicated Jonathan's life tremendously. He risked losing his father's favor. He put his life on the line. And what he did led to real hardship. After the events that we're looking at today, the two would only meet on one other occasion, and it would be very brief. From that point on, they got little to nothing out of their friendship. Actually, David got more than Jonathan did. And yet they remained faithful to the commitment that they'd made to, to one another. Now, again, I've summarized the story without reading uh, much of it so far, but I want to go back to a couple of sections in chapter 20 to give you a sense of the nature of their friendship. Now, remember when they devised a plan to be able to discern what uh, Saul's intentions were? Did he or did he not intend to kill David? When they did, Jonathan reminded David of their commitment to one another. He says, even if I discover that my father is intending to kill you, he says, I swear, this is verse uh, 12, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time, the day after tomorrow. If he's favorably disposed toward you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan. May it be ever so severely if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you. So again, this is astonishing. If you think about it, both men for different reasons have expected to be king. Um, It wouldn't have been surprising if they had become mortal enemies. It would have been easy for Jonathan to decide, you know what, I'm going to renege on this commitment and take advantage of this opportunity and turn on David, eliminating him as a rival, but he doesn't. He remains bound by this promise that he'd made perhaps several years earlier, even though it almost costs him his life. Jonathan does what he does in order to be loyal, as loyal as he can to his father, but there are limits. He's not blind to Saul's faults but his promises to David take precedence. You know, we too are to honor those who are in authority over us. We're to respect those in power. We're even told to pray for them. But ours should not be a blind loyalty. Respect, honor, obey. But when our core values, the core values of the Bible are at stake, we may be forced to show that our ultimate loyalty is to God, not to man. Jonathan is loyal to his father, but he is faithful to the commitment he's made to David. But he does ask David for a favor in verses 14 and 15. He says, show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Now, let me explain what's going on here. Um, In ancient times when there was a transition of power, um, those loyal to the previous administration were often eliminated. It's a sort of a nice way of saying they were killed, especially for family members. In our system, political appointees to a president submit their resignations uh, when there's a transition. They serve, as we say, at the pleasure of the president. 
But in those days, you generally paid not just with your job, but with your life. Jonathan believes that one day David's going to be king, and he knows that when that transition happens, there may be some bloodshed. So he asks David, would you please spare my descendants? Verse 16 and 17, David agrees, out of love for Jonathan, because he loved him as he loved himself. And one day, there's a story in 2 Samuel when David does exactly that and spares actually a disabled um, descendant of Jonathan's. Once David and Jonathan know Saul's true intentions, they meet one more time at the end of chapter 20, verses 41 and 42. It says, they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we've shown, sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left and Jonathan went back to the town. Now, let me just deal with something quickly here that um, would not have occurred to anyone for almost 3,000 years, but in the last couple of decades has. There is nothing sexual about David and Jonathan's relationship. The biblical language just simply doesn't allow it. For some reason today, people want to eroticize every relationship, but that's not the nature of David and Jonathan's friendship. Yes, they felt deep affection for one another, and yes, they expressed it physically in culturally appropriate ways, but this was not a sexual relationship any more than the friendship between Naomi and Ruth or even Jesus and John. That said, the friendship that the two men had was incredibly important to both of them, important in a way that seems odd to us. In fact, few of us have friendships that really look like this. Many years ago, I was gathering with some men. I don't remember what the occasion was. I don't remember much about it, except that the uh, facilitator broke us into groups, had us sit in chairs and circles. He posed a question. I don't even remember what the question was, but I remember as we went around that each of the men in that group said virtually the same thing. He said, I don't have any friends. One even mentioned the title of a book, The Friendless American Male. At the time, I didn't feel that way. I was single. I had a number of really great friends, some of whom I'm still in touch with today. But clearly, they felt differently. In recent years, um, by the way, stereotypically, many people say that women are better at friendship than men. And I've seen studies that say that you know, maybe three out of four women say they have a best friend, and maybe one out of two men or one out of three men say that. But I've begun to notice that it's really everyone, both men and women, that struggle to maintain friendships. We have a culture where our lives are full and busy kind of mitigates, works against us in terms of developing these kinds of friendships. And I believe that one of the things we need to do is to make friendship a priority once again. Our greatest need, though, is for what I would call spiritual friendships. I'm not talking about two fraternity brothers that get together and watch the old alma mater play football. What I'm talking about is friends that help us find and follow God, the kind of friends that we can go to and be honest with about our struggles and our joys, people who encourage us and challenge us, people who share how God's at work in their lives and encourage us with insights that they have found from the Bible. Or just point out the beauty of the day, just in a way that encourages us. Three times in the last six months, I've ended up in a bagel shop in one of the southwest suburbs. It's not a place I had ever really been before. Each time I've gone, it was on a Thursday, and I've seen the same four guys sitting in the same booth in that restaurant eating breakfast. The last time I was there was three weeks ago. Uh, a distant relative of mine was in town, so I, he was in the area at a hotel near there. So I ended up meeting him there. Ended up sitting in the booth right next to these four guys. And I overheard a bit of a conversation. Someone who knew them uh, walked up the four and said, hey, you know, I see you guys here every once in a while. And one of them said, yeah, we're here every Thursday. And we have been for 15 years. 
In one of the others joked, he said, you know, if this place goes out of business, we're going to have to buy it just so we have a place to meet. It turns out that these four guys are Christians, and they've been meeting for encouragement and support for 15 years. I have a group of guys that I met when I first moved to the Twin Cities, um, and we meet only a few times a year, not every week. But in the last couple of years, it's been particularly important to many of us. One of the guys went through a divorce. Um, One time he came home from a business trip to find that his wife had taken their kids and moved to another state. Another lost his sister in a tragic accident last year. Others have gone through career transitions and challenges with kids. It's real life stuff, but we have one another to be able to share and support and encourage one another. Now, one of the things you may have noticed is that so far anyway, I haven't mentioned marriage. It's not because I don't think marriage is important, uh, because many of the kinds of support and challenge and encouragement that we can get that comes in friendship can come in marriage. But implicit often in our thinking is that the only person we actually need is our spouse, that marital love is the highest form of love. But that's not necessarily true. First, um, even married couples need friends, friends outside of their marriage. It's important. And secondly, not everyone's going to get married. And even in the Bible, marriage isn't described that way. The highest form of love that the Bible talks about is not eros love or sexual love, but agape love, the kind of self-giving, sacrificial love that's available to all. And it's the sort of love that was demonstrated for us by Jesus. I do believe, though, that taking friendship seriously will diminish the kind of loneliness today that many of us feel. It will challenge us to be better versions of ourselves, and it will help us through the challenges of life that come our way. Well, this week at kingdavidideas at gmail.com, someone shared a story about a time when they were struggling and how someone befriended them. Here's what she wrote. She said, during a very dark period of my life, I had a friend who demonstrated incredible sacrificial commitment and friendship toward me. I was in a work position which required me to give and care for others by day, but because of some personal challenges, I was finding it very hard to keep faith or hope alive in my own life. My friend committed to visit me every Tuesday after she got off work to pray over me. So week after week, for about five months, she came faithfully to enter my pain and hold on to hope for me where I had none. She wouldn't let me pray for her, do anything for her, or repay her in any way. She knew what I needed was to receive the care of another. And while she didn't have answers or solutions for the challenges I was facing, she refused to leave me to face these battles alone. I will never forget her example of love and devotion and the life-giving difference it made. We need friends, and we need to nurture the friendships that we have, especially those that support us spiritually. So I was thinking about David and Jonathan this week, and I was reminded of Frodo and Sam in The Lord of the Rings. Now, I just have to confess, I've read the books, I've seen the movies, this isn't the greatest thing in the world for me, but there is a part of the story that I just love, and that's the relationship between Sam and Frodo. If you know the story, you know that Frodo's task is to take this magical ring all the way to the mountain of Mordor and see it destroyed. And at the end of the first film, these two friends, um, Frodo realizes that he needs to take this journey alone. So he slips away from the other, gets in the boat, he starts to go across the river. And suddenly, Samwise Gamgee appears, and he says, Frodo, Mr. Frodo! And he shouts, and Sam, or Frodo says, go back, Sam. I'm going to Mordor alone. And then Sam, who can't swim, jumps into the river to go after, uh, after Frodo. He tries desperately to swim out to the boat, but he's about to drown when Frodo grabs him and pulls him into the boat. And Frodo looks at Sam as if to say, you know, you really didn't have to do that. Why would you risk your life to, to swim to me? 
But Sam says to him, I made a promise, Mr. Frodo, a promise. Don't you leave him, Samwise Gamgee. And I don't mean to. I don't mean to. And so Frodo embraces Sam and says, come on. If you've seen the end of the, the last movie, when it's really when Sam shows the true nature of his friendship with Frodo. They're climbing Mount Doom um, to throw the ring into the fire. The climb is treacherous. The two face incredible challenges. And Frodo's strength is ebbing as they near the top. And exhausted, he tells Sam he just can't go any further. In fact, he tells Sam, you, you go ahead and carry the ring. Sam says, I can't carry the ring for you, Frodo, but I can carry you. And then he puts Frodo on his back, and he walks up to the edge of that volcano, and the ring is destroyed. The big picture story here today is that God has a plan for his people. He will provide the good leadership that they need as a nation. But the secondary theme is that he uses a friendship to accomplish this. Someone who's willing to set aside self-interest in his own comfort to see that God's will is done and in the process shows us the nature of true friendship. Let's pray. Father, you've created us so that we need relationships, we need friendships. And the kind of friendship we see demonstrated between Jonathan and Saul, or Jonathan and David, is powerful. Help us to nurture the friendships that we have, to build new ones, especially those that help us to grow spiritually. Help us to stick with those who are close to us, to make deep and lasting commitments. And may your purposes be accomplished through us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.